Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Um, I'm actually here today because you're the people that are going to help California make it through your personal actions, through your professional actions, and through your engagement and demanding action through the political process. We're facing challenges to all of our Earth systems, let alone California water system, and that are accelerating at an unprecedented pace, much of it brought on by climate change, which is a freight train of pain coming at us quickly down the track. But add to that the filling of our oceans with plastics, the despoiling of ecosystems across the globe to meet the demand for cheap goods or fancy phones, and the development and generation of chemicals, both toxic and endocrine disrupting, disrupt bathing us daily, and the time is really now to act. Business as usual on every level will not get us to a resilient or a sustainable future. And I'll tell you my conclusion right up front. Sustainability and resilience are about more than engineering infrastructure or personal choices. They require a suite of changes to the way we do business in politics and business and with each other. And that's complex, and it's going to require all of us to stretch and to engage. Business as usual, and I don't just mean economic business, is the path to disruption, dissolution, and decay. I think the public is way ahead of politicians on this one at least potentially, and I'm so grateful to you for joining us today and for the fine folks at the Commonwealth Club for inviting me, particularly Anne Clark, who walks the walk and talks the talk. Um, thank you for the introduction and the invitation. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the honor of addressing you today. Some I know some of you, I've known some of you for many years and others are new to me, and I'm going to talk about the actual challenges of dealing with the future of water in California and how critical local leadership and action is and has always been and will always be. I'm going to share some examples of what can be done from across the state, the nation, and the world. Frequently, we like to think of California as cutting edge on all things. Um, we are on some of them, to be sure, uh, but not at all on others. Uh, and that's okay because it's going to give us things to aspire to. And it reminds us that we don't even have to be on the bleeding edge of everything. And there's still some low-hanging fruit for us to pick. All is not lost. Um, I'm going to warn you, this especially, well, this is those of you who don't know me already. And if I'm going to date myself by saying, I hope you like Spalding Gray, because I am the Spalding Gray of the environmental movement. My pace is going to be rapid. Uh, my goal is not to give you three points to remember that I'm going to lay out and repeat and explain. My goal is to take you on a ride through some of our issues and some solutions and some things that are needed to give you a menu of ideas to ponder and integrate into your thinking. You're clearly thoughtful people and hesitate to say nerds or geeks, for showing up on an evening uh, to give up your evening for me. So I'm assuming you're kindred spirits who want to see progress made. Um, last time I was here um, talking about this subject was in 2015, I realized, as I went through my files. And a lot's happened since then that actually gives me more hope than I felt during the depths of the drought. So um, that's good. So let's move on from there, and then we can get to conversations. All right. This is how most people approach any conversation about water and the Bay Delta in particular. I'm not going to talk as much about Bay Delta tonight because it could be the topic for another talk, but I will talk about it a little bit. But this is how most people approach any conversation about California water, in part 
because I think many folks who work on it talk about it this way precisely so fewer people can engage. So in fact, I think it's quite definable, quite knowable and fixable, or at least improvable, and we just need to apply the right tools and the right attitude. Just a moment on sustainability versus um, resilience. I'm not going to go all Merriam-Webster on you. I've seen in so many talks where folks get into the definitions of sustainability versus resilience, and then they argue about which one. They're not the same thing. They're two different things. Sustainability is absolutely great. You know, I think about it as using materials responsibly in the first instance and figuring out how to reuse and recycle. And you think about sustainability, it's how to survive with limited resources. Circular economy is another way people are talking about this in the business world, in the arena of production and manufacturing. Cities have been on this for a while, and as you'll hear me say over and over, cities are usually on things way ahead of the state or federal government. Um, Conservation, water recycling, um, conservation efficiencies in energy, reduce, reuse, recycle, and solid waste was totally driven at the local level, and it was driven 30 years before the big push on water conservation, which is interesting when you think about the importance of an issue like water that reduced, reused, recycle movement and solid waste, which I was a part of way back when in the city of L.A. actually took on first because people got it. Now, resilience adds something really different and I think is an important conversation for us to be having and having more often. It's a bit more ominous because it's figuring out how to both deal with uncertainty and with disruption, which is what we're all going to need to deal with, to deal with the curveballs that climate change is going to be throwing at us at a faster and faster scale, and we're already seeing it. It is a different world that we're living in. And when you're talking about resilience, you're talking about being able to develop systems and work on things that can handle uncertainty and that can deal with disasters and disruption, which is a very different mindset than trying to get to sustainability. And it requires a lot more than smart engineers and public support for investment in infrastructure, though that's hard enough to find, and public engagement in the behavior changes needed for conservation, efficiency, recycling, etc., though it requires that. It requires more systems thinking. It requires flexibility. It requires relationships across totally different sectors and different geographies. It requires taking a longer view than even traditional budgeting, at the state and local level of one year or five years, or even the 30-year infrastructure investments we're used to making when we think we know what the environment for that infrastructure investment is going to be 30 years from now. We can't, which means we're going to have to think about a different way of putting together our infrastructure. We're going to have to be much more comfortable with uncertainty and with relying on different partners to get things done. In the field of of water, it really requires a systems approach from the top of the watershed to the bottom and back again in order to get what Ellen Hannock of PPIC calls more pop per drop, which means we have to start thinking at the top of the watershed to the bottom and think about flood control, water supply, water quality, urban greening. You can name 10 more at the same time. The beauty of it is that the water drop doesn't care about that, and the nature normally would do that civilizations have done that for years. And it's just in modern times that we've become so siloed in our professional accomplishments and degrees and in the way we structure our institutions and write our laws that we've separated it out in an intensely inefficient way. And, and, and that for that, we're wasting water and we're wasting money. But it's not that easy to wave a magic wand and change it. And the answer isn't to create 
a top-down <laughs> bureaucracy that controls everything from the top. It really does take uh, a different way of thinking and different efforts on the ground. I'm going to talk about that um, a little bit. I think it's a heady task, but one that we can rise to. And I'm going to run through some examples of why we actually have to act with more urgency in California than we have, and then um, to lift you from the depths of despair, in case I've taken you there. I'm going to give you the many signs of hope I'm seeing that are accelerating uh, quickly. I put in parentheses, yay, and some (laughs) how I felt when I was writing, I guess, and some tips on how to manage the transition that apply to individual cities, businesses, agencies, et cetera. I'll focus on the the individual. We can talk about whatever we want. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Okay, my point. We need more than resilient infrastructure, though we clearly need to do that and build things a little different. I'll give you some examples of that. But we need more resilient institutions and we need more resilient relationships. And again, as much as there are times when I'm dismayed, one of the advantages of having this bizarre career arc and having had the the privilege of being in government at a time when you you actually get to learn what's out there, which is something that's not that easy to do unless you're in a position where you're out there in government. That's what the beauty of being in government is this information um, heaven. I've actually seen a lot of signs of hope, and I've had a fair amount of time to travel and think since I left the board, so I may have more of them than you would think, and I hope it doesn't detract from the urgency of what I'm trying to say. So California context. Context is everything. I, I may give this somewhat short shrift, but I'm happy to talk about it afterwards because I want to have time for these examples from elsewhere because when Anna and I spoke, we spoke about talking a bit about some of the international examples and examples from outside California, though I do have some of them. Just give you an idea as almost a shopping list of things that we could think about that we're not necessarily doing as much as we could right now and then what it'll take to get there. Don't get nervous about this slide. This is the, people have said, unless you have Godzilla and an elephant in a presentation, I wasn't there. Um, But (laughs) I'll I'll tell you why. And I I tried to make wallet cards of this for you, but I just ran out of time to figure out how to do it and go get them um, laminated. But I, I call this the wallet card. And I call it the wallet card because the point of this is not, it, this is, this is, this wallet card is to sort of arm you at dinner parties against the jerk who thinks they know everything and thinks there's only one answer. And if those bleeping idiots, and they can be government, enviros, ag, whoever it is people are arguing at or pointing to or blaming for our problems, if those bleeping idiots just did this one thing that I've been advocating for, all our problems would be solved. That is the nature of discussions about California more often than I care to admit. And so when I I left the California water world when I left EPA after working on the Delta Accord, the Bay Delta Accord and a series of other agreements, and I ran screaming into land conservation because I wanted to work with people who actually knew how to make a deal with people they didn't already know who might not agree with them at the beginning. And I'd see what that felt like for a while. And it was lovely for another seven years. And then I came back when I came to NRDC into the policy world and immediately got dragged right back into the California water world because I think they needed their social worker, you know, because I'm more of a social worker than anything else. I like farmers. I like environmentalists. I like urban water people. I tend to like people. And I think even when people are jerks, if you pay enough attention, you ask enough questions, you can usually find out why somebody loves them. And I think that's actually helpful, particularly in someone who has to run large, long public hearings for days at a time where people are angry and scared. But I digress. The reason for the elephant 
was that I left for seven years, right? And then I came back. And what did I see everywhere? The same people talking past each other, louder and slower, saying the same stuff they were saying when I left and not talking with each other. And so it made me think of the parable of the blind man and the elephant, where they're each touching a different part of this amazing creature, and you, it can't possibly be one creature the way they're talking about it. And that is the problem in California water in terms of the kinds of conversations and the discourse we have that don't get us to what seem like sensible solutions, even if complex. And so I did this card to arm people at dinner parties, because I talked pretty fast, about the things you kind of need to know. There's probably more I could probably make less about California water to arm you against those conversations you have with people who are experts and have been in the water world for a long time, but really don't listen to anybody else and don't seem to understand the complexity of the issue. It's it's stunning because I've worked in air and water and waste and you really dug through my resume and I was a Chinese studies major. I've done all kinds of different things, but I've never found a group which is this high touch and this repetitive in their talking. And they're very smart. And some of them are among my favorite people, though I, it took me, I, when I interviewed for my job, I told the governor that I had drunk more alcohol on behalf of the environment than anybody I knew, because to get to those deals, I had to keep having conversations with people to focus on what their interests are and what the legitimate interests of other people were. And I hesitate to say that Ultimately, when I went to the state board, I had to do more of it, but I had too little time to drink, obviously, and I had too much time spent in hearings because we made some progress, but not enough. So here are the key here are the key things to know. The key thing is we have the most variable hydrology in the country. Um, I, I saved one slide of the slides I cut for that. It doesn't rain the same year to year. It doesn't rain in the places where it's most used. It doesn't rain in the seasons or snow in the seasons when it's most used. So we have a very variable hydrology, which calls for a different kind of water management than you would in most places where it actually rains continuously throughout the year. Many of my friends in California don't realize that it actually rains in the summertime in other parts of the country. And when they go on vacation and they got rained on in July in Miami, they're shocked. And I said, well, no one in Florida was shocked. But in any event, it, it, it calls for a different kind of infrastructure than you would need in Florida. Again, mix of sources. There's not one source. California is huge, but even more than other states of approximate size, it has wildly diverse water sources. Some people are lucky enough to see their surface water. A river goes by and they know their water comes from there. That's well less than half of Californians. The vast majority of Californians get their water from hundreds of miles away through this amazing infrastructure I will show you, amazing on one hand, destructive in the other, on balance. I think it's a social miracle, um, but we need to work on it to be less of a, a, a downside at times. So people have a different mix of surface water. Sometimes it comes from far away. Sometimes it's local. Or it comes from, some people don't have any surface water. Some people are on groundwater. Some people are partially on groundwater. Some people have no groundwater, like San Diego doesn't have any large groundwater basins to speak of. And that's going to matter when it comes to what are the solutions that are reasonable for San Francisco versus, I mean, a, a, a San Diego as opposed to a San Francisco or somewhere else. So every locale has a different mix, different mix of water rights. You know, we have a classic Western system, first in time, first in right. It was taken from mining law. It, it doesn't actually, it was thinking of water as something to be extracted. I'm not going to do a whole lecture on water rights, but ours are pretty challenging. 
Um, but there's a mix of water rights. So during the drought, when you would see those films of fallowed fields, if you had panned a little to the left, you might have seen a lush field. So one might have been a senior water rights holder over surface water with their surface water rights. Another might be junior or the fallowed field might be a senior water rights holder who decided to sell his or her water that year. So you can't tell by looking at. So the impact of the drought varied greatly. As a result, as you can imagine, mix of solutions, conservation, recycling, stormwater capture, desal in the appropriate circumstances are a big deal. And why do we say in the appropriate circumstances? Well, it's the most expensive water. It's the most energy intensive water. But if you're San Diego and you don't have a groundwater basin to put your recycled water or your stormwater in, it's a more attractive option for a sliver of your water supply. And if you're the last person at the end of the pipe, so to speak, and you're a relatively new city, so you're relatively junior, even in your contract rights, then you got to cut them a little bit of a break, even though they do have to follow all the same rules. Integrated water management is really the answer, and our state's been working on it for over a decade, trying to perfect a program. The thing I found in my travels um, around the world in the last a few months is that it's actually not unique to us. We didn't invent it. It's happening all over the world and has been happening all over the world for a long time. I was amazed to listen to a panel with the person from Namibia, the person from, uh, I think, Rwanda, the person from Guatemala. I mean, everyone was talking about how they were implementing integrated water management, which I thought was cool. And then I say storage, 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 because that's one of those things that for some people is a dirty word. They're thinking about on-stream large dams. But storage, storage, storage is, and I'll show you why, is essential to modern California. But I put it four times, not for emphasis, I put it four times because we need big, small, uh, above ground and underground. And the underground becomes particularly important and was to us. And then the other basics about our population and et cetera. Key thing here is that one of, we're one of only five Mediterranean climates that can do large-scale agriculture, that can grow healthy fruits and vegetables. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's actually really important. Now, does that mean you're bringing water in a to to irrigate crops in an arid land that couldn't support them without that? Yeah, but it is growing healthy fruits and vegetables that we actually need and we want people to eat. So it's just not as simple as the um, talking points you hear a lot of time, biodiversity we're losing, and the institutional setting is quite fragmented. We have thousands of water agencies, and that is a challenge. We have 7,000 drinking water agencies, but that counts trailer parks and small. 3,000 regular water agencies above 25, and 400 of them are large, 400 plus, that serve 3,000 or more. So very, very fragmented, so you don't get many economies of scale. Okay, so that's just to show you that we are variable in hydrology to have one. Now, this slide's important. This is the where the water comes from. And I, I put the Colorado River guy in there because we always forget to talk about the Colorado River, but it actually supplies 30% of Southern California's water. If you don't think that's important economically, socially, and politically, think again. So we should all know a lot more about the Colorado River, and I've been trying to learn more um, about it myself. And that's where more of the people are. Here are the water project. This is the infrastructure that makes modern California possible because of what I talked about, that imbalance. And it becomes very important if you look at, um, I don't know if there's, you know, here's the Bay Area's water, McCullumney for the East Bay mud system, the Hetch Hetchy system from San Francisco. Then you've got the Owens Valley Aqueduct, which everybody thinks they understand L.A.'s water because they've seen Chinatown. It's like 15% of L.A.'s water today because they gave up a lot of it for the environment. 
<clears throat> I'm just saying to the Bay Area because the Bay Area takes most of their water from the Delta. They just take it above the Delta rather than below the Delta. So they don't end up in the big fights over tunnels. But uh, make no mistake, um, we, those of us who live here, are taking water from a fish every time we water our lawns, just as much as the folks in Southern California. We were just here first. Okay, this is the biggest point. Hey, Coleman, this was the, the picture on the bathroom mirror during the drought. I talked about how important storage is. In an average year, storage, the snowpack accounts for 30% of our storage. Under climate change, a few degrees rise in temperature, we lose it. So who, the percentages vary all the time, but it could be 30%, 50%, 70% by the end of the century. And that will make all the conflicts we have now over water seem like a picnic. So we don't have a lot of time to waste. The happy thing is the only thing that can approximate that snowpack in size, that much storage, are groundwater basins, which we've overdrafted. So figuring out how to refill them, which you can't fill as easy as a surface impoundment, is really a key also to buying time as well as technological advance. So here, we talked about that. And the importance of protecting nature I put up there just because I think that folks don't um, recognize the fact that protecting nature is important to protecting ourselves. The public, again, understands this more than politicians because you don't have fish coming and lobbying. They are not writing checks, although people would like them to carry checkbooks for water. Um, but it still is an important thing. And also a, a recognition that even without climate change, we've had droughts of 30, 40, 400 years and longer in the geophysical record in California. So we may just have been in a fairly wet hundred and so years we've been keeping track. Oddly enough, or scarily enough, um, Australia had the same more or less hundred year, uh, more or less three to five year uh, drought cycle. Um, and they hit the millennium drought in the middle of the 90s that lasted for 10 or 12 years, depending on where you are. I'm going to talk about them a little bit. So, oh, sorry, I didn't fix the animation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this just to say this was what the Brown administration came up with about six years ago, just to say we're not, enough with the talking. We're going to get in action. We're not going to argue about which is best. We have to do all of these to deal with a collective threat that we're going to face under climate change. And that's why you see the one about groundwater in particular being significant because he put a lot of political capital right away on putting um, on getting historic groundwater legislation passed, which we hadn't took a hundred years after the surface water system, such as it is for us to have groundwater legislation. We can talk about it. I'm planning to talk about it at all in detail, but I'm happy to. Now, Governor Newsom took the baton and has been updating it. Um, the draft was out. Um, the comments were due a couple of weeks ago. It's also based on the portfolio. It's a re-up uh, and a, a very overdue, a need for re-upping much more detailed um, plan. And some of the key things I pulled out of it is that it has a very much regional approach, which makes sense from a watershed perspective, and they want to try and do more on that. Look at multi-benefit projects, like I was talking about, the pop per drop. Really integrating technology, innovation, and data, which is very welcome. Um, and a lot of agency integration on projects, which is, again, easier said than done. All right. I love this slide. The beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Um, but it is not actually the right slide. That would be when the well is dry, we know the worth of water. I won't go into the detail about the drought, but it really was the worst in modern history and the harbinger of things to come. Just to give you a sense of what we were looking at at snowpack, it was the worst snowpack in 500 years or more was pretty awful. And it was the wake-up call 
of wake up calls. I, I, I like to say, you know, shame on us if we press the snooze button and so far nobody is. And the fact that water conservation, which is one of the great successes of the drought, has held. Not at the full 25%, but it's still only dropped maybe a third at most from there. Because once it's learned that you don't need to hemorrhage water on your lawn, you've learned it. And people's habits have changed. Then there's always Abraham Lincoln. I'm a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be dependent on to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. So when I caught this, I was just looking for reality slides. I don't know any of you do PowerPoints. You spend a lot of time late night looking for pictures. And I didn't realize that beer was so important. So I went on this, you know, further Google rant and I Googled John F. Kennedy and beer, Robert F. Kennedy and beer, Martin Luther King and beer, Ronald Reagan and beer. And I got nothing. But what I got from Martin Luther, who came up in that search, was whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep long, does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. Just saying. I said, important if true, right? So I tried to young this up because I realized Linko's here. So I found Ice Cube. And I, I liked that he said, to me, reality is better than being fake. And he, he also said, the worst thing you can do about a situation is nothing, which does encapsulate a lot of California water. And then I realized, I don't know why I'm quoting him, because he also came up with by Felicia, which has been the bane of my existence. I won't, I can explain that later, if you don't know it. So here's the reality. I'm just going to, we have that. We have populations going to rise. We have sea level rising, which is a huge deal from the Bay Area with a one-two punch of not only inundation from sea level rise, but groundwater flooding, because we don't have depressed groundwater basins. So basements are going to be flooded. It sort of accelerates the infrastructure challenge. It's really pretty huge. The Delta is the central challenge of our time in terms of can we as a civilization show that we can rise to the occasion and figure how not to make extinct salmon and other species and destroy an ecosystem. This is an ecosystem that we've, for good purposes, these are competing goods, not good versus evil. We've extracted more than the system can take. There is no ecosystem that has had this much water extracted from it that has survived as an intact ecosystem. And so the question for us is, can we find a way without destroying agriculture or destroying communities to right the wrong a little bit and add a little water and add habitat and a lot of human intervention. I really do think the jury's out on this. I think it, it's in this decade, if not the next five years, that we'll know if salmon will live or die because of the delay in dealing with these issues and because of people arguing past each other. And um, I just I, I hate to think we're going to be the generation that loses salmon, let alone smelt, or, you know, or that we sucked our rivers dry when all the signs were telling us what we were doing and when there are alternatives available in terms of conservation and other um, conjunctive use programs and other things. But I think that issue of the elephant I showed is what's in our way. It is not the technology. It is not the engineering. It's attitude and practice. Um, that's just one of many slides about the plummeting of the ecosystems Ag is precious. I've talked about that already, so we can't just blame ag and tell it to go away. We need to be growing fruit and fiber for people. Can't pick on I, – I, I, I took out all my stuff about defending almonds. 
depending on where they are. And almond is not an almond. Depends on where it is and where it's planted in terms of problems. Groundwater, we've drained our groundwater basins um, beyond belief. You can even see it from space. I think these slides help lead to, not my slides, but the Jay Familetti slides from NASA JPL. He's now at University of Alberta. Um, really helped the public create a cry for groundwater management, which led to the passage of the act. We've got contaminated groundwater all the place. If you're in L.A. or San Francisco or somewhere, you can pay to treat it. You can blend it with other water sources. It's it's not it's treating water isn't rocket science really. Sometimes you're treating rocket fuel when you do it, but it's it's the application of energy and money, and you can clean up almost anything. The problem is if you're in a small rural community on a shallow groundwater well, and we have maybe up to a million people in California in that position. It's actually a crisis in the issue of our time, and I'm happy that Governor Brown and Governor Newsom have stepped up to deal with it, and our infrastructure's old. But now, for the good news. Quickly, we can do a lot about it. There are examples out there. I'm not going to give a lecture about this, but to share some ideas. Again, food for thought. Let's think about a few things from Australia. Australia, this is the Murray Darling Basin. It covers several states. It's a big river system. They divert their water from a long way away, some of it from entirely different watersheds as well. Very similar. Also, a varying hydrology can be dry, can be very wet. In fact, in their millennial drought, they waited so long to act because they thought surely it'll rain next year because of that three to four year, five year cycle that they then had to do it all at once because their major cities were at risk of running out of water. So they built massive desal facilities that then stayed mothballed for years and years and years. They finally just used them maybe 10 years later. They would have rather saved that money, built it at a more judicious pace with more modern technology. It was the most expensive uh, insurance policy um, imaginable, and that's why we did our conservation and recycling work earlier because the Australians said, don't wait. We were fools to think it would just rain. You're in the same position. And so they, they really helped us a lot. They came up with a really interesting, they believe in science there more and invest more in science. I hate to say it. But they actually, than we do at any time, I'm not just talking about this administration, they, their uh, National Science Institute said we should leave at least 50% in the rivers and save the river. Um, they also had added $10 billion to help buy water and water rights to help deal with it with farmers versus our more regulatory approach. And they also spent a lot of it to retrofit um, farms and then split the savings with farmers. So some farmers ended up ahead with the investment from the state. Jury's out. There are stories about everything that's not working about it. There's been fraud in the water rights system. They also instituted a lot of trading. I'm not saying we should do everything they did, but they've done some things in water rights. Um, Actually, things they did in 1905. If we did those now, that would satisfy me. That would be helpful. But we'll talk about that if you want. But they really are leaders in this whole movement towards water-sensitive cities. And it's not just the kinds of things we talk about, and we'll talk about it, but they came up, um, I don't know if this actually came from Australia, but it's been popularized in Australia by the Center for Water-Sensitive Cities, but the idea of how we go in a continuum to go to the next level. And I think we're somewhere between the waterway city and the water cycle city in a lot of our fairly progressive cities in California, some are obviously still, you know, back in the early, but the water-sensitive city is the one that really does think about resilience using nature and nature-based solutions, and they've got some amazing things going there. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. They also have done a lot of things that we've already learned from. They did the the desal, which we've learned as a negative of what not to do. And then we'll, when we do desal, we're doing it more thoughtfully because we have the time. But they also um, did incredible things in Melbourne during their drought. They decided to double their tree canopy, even though trees take a lot of water, because they knew that was important for life. Again, I'm talking about multiple benefits and thinking more holistically. So they really went and did a blitz also on capturing all their stormwater and recycled water from major facilities, put giant cisterns under all of their major parks, and in some cases, recycled water treatment centers so they could keep their parks and playgrounds and they could add more trees because they were worried that with climate change and the increasing in heat, they were going to have old people dropping dead on the sidewalks, essentially. I mean, they have much more of an integrated public health environment, et cetera, focus. Again, gross generalizations, they've done plenty of things poorly. All these cities and countries I'm going to talk about, I could give you examples they've done poorly, but that would be kind of a downer of an evening. And we're not going to really learn from all of those. So just to give you an example, but if you go to Elmer Avenue in Los Angeles, it is based on some of the work in Australia with the whole neighborhood retrofitted with cisterns, French drains, all kinds of um, things to save water on site or get it into the groundwater basin. And it's actually been pretty incredible um, to watch. So they've influenced a lot of us. There's more. They do a lot more in gray water and rain barrels. In fact, you know, in China, getting back to Asian studies, the way you say, how are you? One way to say is nitrofama, which is, have you eaten rice? The presumption being that if you've eaten rice, you must be fine. It's sort of thing. In, in, in Australia, they say, how are your tanks? You know, during a dry. It's just interesting. Singapore is really interesting. I mean, that is a real picture. That is not crazy. They've done, in the most, one of the most densely populated small urban principalities, they've gone long on bringing green and nature into their cities. A lot of cities are doing this. You see a lot of the buildings with plants growing down the sides of the buildings, et cetera. Some of the architectural firms that are doing that are actually in San Francisco. They also are probably the most advanced in recycled water and desal. Again, they're small, though. They're facing an existential crisis where Malaysia threatens to cut off 50% or more of their water source because they control the river off and on. So they, they had a powerful motivation. I'm not saying we have to do what Singapore does on any level, but the technology is there and the experiments are there. We don't have to reinvent the wheels. Same is true in Israel. Let There Be Water, a book by Seth Siegel, sort of talks about Israel turning around and, and seizing the moment. Again, small country, existential threat. Um, started as a socialist nation, so there's much more of a sense of community um, in general, it, for good or bad, as I'll, I'll, I'll say later in their founding. Um, but they you know, are world leaders in desal technology and recycled water. They nationalized everything. They have one water carrier. They have an agency that regulates everyone. I could dream of that. I think we <laughs> regulated the CPU. We didn't regulate anybody except during the drought, but the CPUC regulates about 17% of the water agencies, just the privates. The individuals aren't actually regulated from above. The Australians actually did a change to that. I can talk about it if you want, but the Israelis turned it into one. They use desal for drinking water. They use recycled water 
for agriculture. They recycle 85% of their water. So they've done the technology trials. They're not, they're not perfect. They are all kinds of water issues in Israel from destroying the Red Sea from um, mining. I'm trying to remember what the phosphorus mining, I think it is, and some kind of wacky plans to restore it that make the things we argue over in the Delta seem like a, a picnic. But they've done so well with water, they actually use it for diplomacy and have all kinds of agreements with Jordan. But they do have issues that are challenging in the Palestinian areas and the right and the Kidron River is filled with wastewater. I just went and visited it. But there are some amazing NGOs trying to do some amazing work there too. So they're not so different from us as people, both in and out of government parties, in and out, have different views of things. I have this picture because there's a story of redemption there that's instructive for us in the Delta, where when Israel was founded, a big deal about draining the swamps, right, wetlands, swamps, and becoming an agrarian agricultural state to grow food for people. So they drained a lot of the swamp, so to speak. And in the Hula Valley, that resulted in a die-out of species, massive dust storms. And I was in a dust storm when I was there. And it was like one of the most amazing things ever. But they actually have done an incredible turnaround working with agriculture to try and restore wetlands. And now they have nature reserves and the like up there that are expiring. The Netherlands, known for their dikes, obviously flooding is their issue. Ours tends to be drought, but we get floods too. It's not just dikes they've built. They've actually done what they call the room for the river, projects every with a lot of public engagement where they've not just set back the river in agricultural arenas, which we're trying to do more of around the Sacramento Bay Delta and some inspiring things in the rice arena and other communities, Yolo Bypass, Sutter Bypass, but they actually did it in urban areas where folks moved out of the way to make room for the river because it was in the interest of that community in the long term. It's hard to imagine us being able to do that, but we can learn a lot. And then you have Denmark. And I use this slide because I was there and I love this. They have a full-size Lego representation of a sewage treatment plant in Aarhus, Denmark. That is a thing to behold. Of course, they are the land of Legos. But there's also stuff we had an MOU with them and learned from them where, you know, they don't have a lot of snowpack in Denmark. It's kind of a small country that's kind of flat. So they rely on groundwater. So they have it measured top to bottom. And in a way, we could and I'm hoping this governor will get the data out there so each individual groundwater basin doesn't have to figure it out. They have it all monitored, and it's very strictly regulated, where you can farm over it, what you can use if you farm, etc. They take their groundwater very seriously, and we can learn a lot from them. And then one domestic one, there are others. Um, Philadelphia is pretty incredible on at least two levels. Philadelphia, like a lot of eastern cities, San Francisco too, they just built that underground moat and they don't there's not a lot of space to do a lot of greening in San Francisco though it could use a few more trees shout out to the friends of the urban forest there but um uh they were faced with fines from EPA for what are known as combined sewer overflows because they had a combined system most of the western places have separated systems where the San Francisco has this too where your stormwater and your wastewater get into the same pot and in big rains it overflows and you're allowed to overflow a certain amount it's very dilute and you'd have to build the most enormous system imaginable to treat it but it's getting to that point where EPA was starting to bring lawsuits and rather than build a giant facility they made a plan to try and green the whole city so that if they're going to spend that money you'll at least have a more beautiful city and I couldn't find, I have them buried somewhere, the before and after photos and the renderings, but they have a plan that's very extensive and they even pay people for keeping water on their 
property. It's very advanced. The other place they're advanced is on affordability and equity, where they've spent a lot of time on that. And you actually pay your water bill for your basic amount of water based on your income. So it's a human right to water kind of an effort, but it's one that everybody's watching. We can't necessarily do it in California because of Prop 218, but it's still instructive for trying to come up with different ways. So the reality is we're, we're no slouches. We did a lot uh, in water conservation and water efficiency. I won't go through it. A lot of prob- progress on safe drinking water. And I thank uh, Governor Newsom for finally getting the last piece of the puzzle, We're getting a funding source to help subsidize poor communities that couldn't even afford operation and maintenance after us getting authorities to be able to consolidate some of these smaller systems into bigger ones and higher administrators and the like. We've got the groundwater management. Recycled water has completely taken off. We put over a billion dollars into grants and loans to get them from the projects from the drawing board into the ground. And now it's not seen as the yuck. We're after the past the yuck factor. It's how fast can we do it. And I'll talk about that a little more than the other things. And a lot of it, we still have problems, though. I'm just trying to say that there's a lot we have to deal with. Um, I won't go over that because I'm past my Debbie Downer thing. But we can't talk about any of them because usually people want to talk about some of them. But the key to the future is this more integrated work and working across local and regional lines. I just gave some of the examples of things happening, a few of the examples happening. But we're at a really interesting inflection point, even in what we're able to do in urban California. Um, You know, the famous quote attributed to Mark Twain that he probably didn't say whiskey's for drinking, water is for fighting. I've been starting to talk about how wastewater is for um, (laughs) fighting because now it's happening. And 30 years ago in L.A., when we we expanded uh, the Tillman Water Reclamation Plant, I didn't. I used to run the public works department in L.A. And it was interesting because a reporter being very clever came to me and said, well, wait a minute, if you're successful in recycling this water then all this L.A. River restoration won't work because we're trying to restore the L.A. River, which is really most of the L.A. River is actually tertiary-treated wastewater from the city's wastewater treatment plants, except when it rains and then it's a raging torrent. That's the nature of um, L.A. And I said to him, well, when that happens, that day I'll be a really happy camper because that means that recycling will finally have taken off if we have to start figuring out what we need to leave in the river because otherwise we would recycle it all. So it took 30 years, but we're there. Petition in front of the state board to not allow L.A. to recycle a certain or and not to allow L.A. or Burbank and Glendale to recycle a certain amount of water because people wanted to keep it in the L.A. River. So I have to be happy about that problem now. And I am because I said I would be. But we, we're now doing a study on the L.A. River about how much needs to stay in. We, they, um, stay in the L.A. River. And it's exciting. And the same thing is happening in the Bay Area, which I'm happy to talk about. We don't have a lot of time, but where you've got more small agencies and you've got small communities wanting to keep all their wastewater because they're going to need it for water supply. And instead, we, we finally had a historic agreement just a few weeks ago between Santa Clara Valley Water District, now Valley Water, Mountain View, and Palo Alto, so that Santa Clara Valley Water District, I always say that rather than Valley Water because there's so many Valley Waters, um, can actually, they want all the wastewater because they need to replenish their groundwater basin. And frankly, if you don't replenish your groundwater basin over there, San Jose sinks. So they have a fairly compelling reason in addition to water supply, but in any event. Okay. So how do we get there? 
the relationship with water has to evolve. This is Mayor Gossetti when he did his water directive, um, which uh, vowed at the time to get 50% off imported water by 2035. He's since upped that to 70% and vowed 100% recycling of their water, which is going to take a moonshot, but they're working on it hard. And this just from a, a charrette I was at, where it was not only the city of L.A., but it was the city, the county, county public works, county San, metropolitan water district, city San, L.A. DWP. People, L.A. DWP fought with us when I was public works. People in county public works referred to me as that woman when I was at L.A. public works, L.A. city public works. And now they're all working together to figure out how to do a telemetered system of where the, using recycling and putting it in other people's basins, et cetera. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible sea change. They passed a measure. It's going to be $300 million a year in the county to do flood control, water quality, water supply, and urban greening. So watch L.A. in the next 10 years. It's going to look completely different. Orange County has the largest... Recycled water, groundwater replenishment project in the world. L.A. County, San, and Metropolitan are working on one that's going to be even bigger. San Diego, because of what I told you, is going to almost direct potable reuse because they don't have room to expand their sewage treatment plant and they don't want to dump it in the ocean anyway. So they're they're the most advanced on direct potable here, and I like it because it has that great Leonardo da Vinci sign that says water is the driver of nature. I'm not going into all of these. We don't have all the time even... Sacramento, regional sanitation, doing a massive groundwater recharge, Cosumnes River ecosystem project, ag work with, they turned the fact that we made them clean up their act in terms of what they're discharging into the um, delta and turned it into a real amenity for water supply in the community. It's really going to be remarkable. Folks in ag are doing these managed aquifer recharge where Mimi and I met. You've got Don Cameron trying to figure out how to do it on crops that people said you couldn't do it on. He said, well, let's go see if we can. And he can. He's really great. You've got experiments with rice in the Sac Valley. You've got people looking at upper watershed management and trees for greater water supply. So there's a lot of good stuff happening. Here you've got, this is the equivalent of uh, uh, Measure W. You've got Measure A, which was you all probably voted for. Thank you very much. Um, which is instead of stopping all development in the bay or all filling of the bay, you're now going to spend $500 million to come up with over 200 Empire State buildings worth of, worth of dredge, dredge material to be able to rebuild wetlands around the bay. Some of those pictures are going to be extraordinary instead of just building seawalls. It's creative thinking, and it's nine counties and 100 cities coming together to get something done in the Bay Area, and I have never seen that happen here. So that gives me many signs for hope. There's an add-up. There's sort of a rendering of what some of it could look like. The God light was a nice touch in that photo. Um, but the adaptation atlas out of the San Francisco Estuary Institute and SPUR here in San Francisco actually has already done the homework for all these communities in, in cutting up the bay into these different urban land things and talking about the kinds of work they can do with stormwater capture, etc. Google is doing amazing stuff on the bay. I don't have time to talk about it, but it's reconnecting with nature. They, they're doing on-site water recycling. They're going to be a net water exporter. They're going to use it, recycle their black water and their gray water. They're going to use it for toilets, and they're going to um, use it for this incredible green space that the whole community can use. It's an amazing place to see. San Francisco is the pioneer on on-site. Not only do they do it in their own building, they've required it for all new big buildings where folks need to do on-site treatment as opposed to them having to build bigger facilities. That's a total sea change in how people are and very hard on public health 
people to feel comfortable with, but new technologies and sensors and the like will help that happen. And there you go. There's more there. And then I'm just going to race through these so we can get to any questions you have because I've gone long. But I love this Yogi Bear in theory. There's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. And that is part of the problem in California water and that people are talking theoretically, again, the dinner party conversation versus the reality of what it takes to make things happen, working with people and trying to find middle ground. We need more resilient institutions. We have to allow them to have relationships. We we can be less fragmented. You can do agreements. as opposed to having to consolidate, but we have to learn how to do that faster across geographies and functions. And the two examples, both in LA and in um, in the Bay Area on Measure AA, give me hope. Um, and then there's how we handle it ourselves. And I, I won't get into my whole training on ecosystem management, which I always say is the biggest problem in California water, much bigger than ecosystem management, as complicated as it is. But the Chinese do have a saying that I will not try to say in Chinese because I'm really bad at it, which is why I went into the environmental field. <laughs> I had to leave because I just it would have been too much work because um, I'm just not a natural. But they say it's like a chicken talking to a duck. When you're talking, maybe you're talking the same language, but you are clearly talking past each other. You're speaking Chinese, you're speaking English, but you are not connecting. And it takes a lot of intention and effort and elevating human skills to try to find the ways that we can get together and make progress rather than just be sanctimonious and right. It's like looking for a Venn diagram. This is the way it seems most people in California water look at the possibility of a Venn diagram. It's like there's just no overlap. So I looked for a Venn diagram that showed overlap, and I really like this one part because of Australia, because I really like wombats, and I like Batman, so it was all pretty good, and I like baseball, so it was just really good. But it's really more like that. You know, it's much more complex, but we can find it. But we can do it. We're all in this together. Look at how people stepped up during the drought. It was astonishing, and in part because we went beyond the usual talking heads and spoke directly to the public, which, again, was ahead of politicians on what needed to happen. This, I don't need to go through this. We have I've already talked about it. And what can we each do? People usually ask me, so I actually put it up. I mean, I think we need to conserve, recycle, and use our purchasing power. We need to rethink our lawns. And I like to say Beyond Burgers are quite tasty because that's a lot of water. In meat, I'm not anti-meat, but just cutting back on meat saves an incredible amount of water. And chemicals... Really, household chemicals, things like spraying too much uh, insect stuff and ant stuff and termite stuff, even onto the concrete so it gets washed into the bay and everywhere. It's the biggest source of toxicity. It's not big corporations. It's what we do now because we haven't cracked down on this or reformulated it, and nobody really wants bugs all over their house, so you can't really ban it. But think about it when you do it. And then I have a whole thing about owning your power as a member of the community because of that, those voices of disempowerment are very strong and they have a vested interest in disempowering you. But when people speak up, it makes a difference. And that means showing up at city councils and at water boards, local water agencies, understanding it, um, and then supporting the people who are brave enough to actually do the right thing, even though it may cost a little bit more or be a little more convenient. Because generally for politicians, it's as fear-based as anything out there. So they need support when they um, they do the right thing. Understand and own your watershed, which means the Delta is your watershed, and speak up about that. That's kind of a silent issue in the Bay Area, where well, everybody points at L.A., but um, 
frankly, the Bay Area have, 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 they haven't been the worst, but they haven't been the best at all by a long shot in trying to figure out how to save the species in the Delta, et cetera, engage. What you say matters, what you do matters, and everyone's a potential ally. And then finally, I, I love, um, we had him too, not long enough, but um, each one of us doing something, and that means what we do in our homes, but also we do in our civic life, make a difference. And the fact that you're at the Commonwealth Club means you have an interest in the civic life of this community, this state, this nation. So thank you for that, and keep it up and make it louder wherever you are. Thanks. Um, okay, here's the first question. I recently heard about SIGMA, Sustainable Groundwater Management. What is it about? Is it an important step in the right direction or a reaction? Is that the word? Reaction? Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you. Um, I, well, I'm a little biased because I was one of the people who helped devise Sigma and um, worked on getting it passed. It is very important. I mean, it's it's probably the most historic legislation passed in California in 100 years. Um, and part of that is, in some ways, not just because we're the last state in the nation to have a statewide framework for protecting groundwater, but because of the way we did it. And we didn't do it as a top-down, one-size-fits-all, because all groundwater basins are different. We did it in a way that sort of took took account of the challenge at the local level of folks managing groundwater. Because groundwater is managed different than surface water. It's managed as what's known as a correlative right, which means all the landowners over it have an equal share. But the only way they could deal with somebody over pumping, and I think a, a big reason why there was more support for it if behind the scenes rather than out in front of microphones, phones was that we had more and more big companies coming in and punching in deeper wells, draining the aquifer down so that smaller farmers or domestic wells were being dried out. And people thought, well, we, we can't stop this ourselves politically at the local level. And so what it does is it sets up, some people think it's too long. I think it's actually pretty challenging considering how hard it is. It, it set a series of deadlines that said by a certain date, over a groundwater basin, you had to form a groundwater um, sustainability agency. This is like creating a whole new governance body to manage that groundwater basin. Then by a certain year, and it was this year, the end of last month, you had to have a plan, and that was five years from passage, a plan for getting your basin into sustainability in a total of 20 years, so 15 years from now, which seems like a long time. But if you went cold turkey, you would have mass chaos and businesses thrown out. This gives folks a time to figure out how to both reduce demand by planting different crops through coming up with trading, through finding other water supplies, through recycling and the like, um, through agreements with others, all kinds of ways. But you had to come up with a plan because we were draining these aquifers dry. And a lot of folks in agriculture recognized that if their grandchildren or even their children were going to have a chance to farm, we had to do something. But we did it in a way that had the locals decide how they were going to do it, because there's not just one way to do it. Also, that way the locals had to grapple with it versus being able to blame a bureaucrat in the state, which would have delayed action. And then we knew, I always say, I, I knew from um, coffee shops and bars that there were people throughout agricultural areas that really wanted something to happen. And I even had a guy grab my arm in a bar who said, 
you guys have to make us do this. Just don't say I told you so. <laughs> because of the po it's politically fraught, again, because of the talking point nature of some people. But people understood that something happened to happen. So in some ways, the strategy was to be able to ha set some high standards, let them come up with whatever method they wanted to to make it happen, but make it happen or the state steps in as the backstop. And nobody wants the state board to step in and require pumping reporting that they're going to put online to you know, collect fees for the privilege of regulating or, or to put them on probation and then ultimately come up with a plan for them if they don't, which is sort of the way that our federal system worked. And so far, it's worked pretty well. I mean, we had 99% compliance with the first deadline. And we had, uh, I don't know how it's doing. I, I understand that a lot of them came in on time. Um, the more are due in two years for the medium risk basins. These are the high risk basins. And I'm hoping there'll be enough of them that are good enough that other people can look at their neighbors or their peers and be inspired by them rather than fighting with, again, a, a bureaucrat in a cubicle. So it's one of those things that's going to take a while. And it may take 20 years to get to sustainability, which is not a great place. It's defined as, I think, 2015, which is already overdrawn, but it's a staunch, the bleeding um, exercise. And I know there's a lot of activity going on um, with really good people trying to figure out how to do that and how to get recharged to happen more quickly during those wet times when there's plenty of water for people and for fish. Uh, the next question is, should rice and cotton be grown in California? It depends on where you are and when. I think um, if we didn't have rice grown in California, we would have far fewer birds because we've destroyed 90-something percent of our historic wetlands, and the only thing that's helping them survive on their migration down the flyway is 500,000 acres of rice fields. So, And it's an interesting thing because rice was once the bad guy crop. Because they use a lot of water, yes, and they used to burn their rice straw at the end of the year, which created all kinds of air quality problems, and they used a lot of herbicides and pesticides. And somewhere in the last 20 years, it was starting when I was at EPA in the 90s, they got themselves off all those herbicides, and they stopped burning the rice straw, and they started flooding them in the fall, which is, there's more water around generally. I mean, it's still a balance. And the rice straw would decomp. And so you have rice straw and grains that then become a food and resting place for birds. And they're trying to do it with fish now. There are all kinds of really interesting um, experiments going where you can keep the fish on the rice fields or right adjacent to the rice fields so they can get fatter so that they can make it through the gauntlet of predators and others on their way to sea. So I'm not saying all rice is good in all places, but rice has done some good things. Cotton is interesting in that Again, it depends on what kind of year you have. You know, again, it's an annual crop. You don't have to grow it every year. In Australia, under their trading, what happens in drought is rice and cotton farmers sell their water to somebody else who can do more with, uh, more with less. So it just depends. I mean, vilifying a crop, we, we have too much of a good thing in California in our cropping, and we will definitely see, especially with Sigma, we'll see a change in cropping patterns, but like it's not a tree necessarily. We have too many almond trees over too many overstretched, overdrafted groundwater basins. That's true. But you can also use trees to do that cutting back on demand, which is what they did in the Mojave groundwater basin where they just did the math. And they saw that by taking alfalfa farmers and switching them to pistachios, they could make the same amount of money with far less water. 
So there they use trees to get people to use less water. But the trick is you can't plant as many pistachio acres of pistachio trees as you did of, you have to look at the dollars and cents versus the acreage that you can plant. So you have to be more businesslike about it. Uh, we've come to that point in our uh, talk tonight, unfortunately. We have one last question. Are there world droughts that follow patterns? Oh, that is such an interesting question. I mean, I think our minds um, try to search for patterns, and there definitely are patterns that um, stretch through periods of time, and there are certain things you can project, but our knowledge base isn't as adept as it should be. It's like this issue of how do you have a state like California, the fifth largest economy in the world, going through a collective myopia that we have a three to five year drought cycle because that's what we've had since we started recording. When the geophysical records looking at tree rings and other things show we've had much longer one and scientists have known that for a long time. So it's an interesting thing. There are some areas though that are more consistent in rainfall and there are some that are more prone to drought than others. We're actually kind of lucky in that the projections under climate change are that Yes, we've got that temperature rise, so more of our precipitation is going to fall as rain rather than snow. And that's a big problem for us because of that timing issue, the temporal issue where we need storage to to get the water to last through the hot summer and the growing season. But we also are going to have big floods. So our total amount of water may be around the same. We're just going to have to figure out how to capture it and get it into the ground and be more efficient with all the water we use. And there'll be technological advances and the like over time. There are other areas where the projections are, it's just going to get drier. So South Africa, where I'm going as an advisor in um, later this year to help, it's just projected to get drier. That is a different problem to solve for than what we have. They're not going to have the luxury of just capturing more of their snowmelt and getting it into the ground because their total amount is going to be less. So they're going to have to be even more creative than we are. So there are patterns that folks have by the nature of how the how um, their geographies, like having mountains and snowpack, I never realized was such a cool thing to have for one's water. Um, some have groundwater, some don't. So it's, again, it's sort of like the initial slide. It, it depends. There's more, there's some places with tendencies that are different than others. But again, if climate change changes all of our weather patterns and the Gulf Stream and all of that, all bets are all bets are off. So it's just going to get more complicated as time goes by. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California and our speaker. She has been a wonderful speaker to us tonight, and I, for one, will tell you that I have learned a lot. So let's give her a big thank you and applause and tell her that this has been a wonderful talk about water and what is happening and what we think will happen in the future. So let's give her a big thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's a good audience. I appreciate it. Our thanks and applause to you, our wonderful audience, and our audiences on the radio, internet, podcast, and listening to us. And thank you for joining us. We look forward to you to come to the Commonwealth Club and our programs. And many thanks to all of you who have been with our Commonwealth Club and especially to Felicia tonight. So again, one more big round of applause. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, guys. Very nice.